help but take an opportunity to remind you of um, the congregational meeting that is facing us on uh, Sunday night and hope that you are planning to be with us. If you're not, uh, come talk to me. I'll try to provide what it is that you need to clear up your schedule. Um, child care is made available. Uh, we'll pick you up if need be, but we want you to be here for that which is a the culmination of a defining moment in the life of Gracie Van. I don't know how well you know me. I don't know what um, what your concept of me is. Actually, I probably wouldn't want to know uh, were you allowed to share all that uh, wonderfully uh, stimulating truth. But the one thing that I, I, I that I hope you know about me is that I love this book. Um, I am. Um, I think that that there's truth to be found no place else. That's not to say that uh, that there aren't some other sciences that have offered us some truths, but it, it's true to the degree that it conforms and is consistent with the, the things contained here. Um, David makes statements like, uh, "I'm wiser than my teachers because of your law." You know, this is this is a book that is consummate truth and. Um, the more I study it, the more I love it, and one such day occurred uh, today. In fact, uh, I sit at my desk from time to time and, and uh, enjoy so much what I'm doing and just can't wait to, uh, um, to, to bring it so that you can listen to it. Not, not that I deliver it so wonderfully, but because the, the content is so marvelously rich. I, I have to tell you, however, in, in a sad confession, that I have never left a podium. I have not once, on every occasion, in the thousands, of, hundreds or thousands of times that I've preached and taught, never have I walked away from a pulpit thinking, oh, well, I really handled that well. Uh, I, really, I really did that one good. Never has that ever, I always walk away thinking, oh, I only wish I had another five minutes, or I wish I could tweak that or change that or underscore this or something. And, and I have to tell you guys, this text that's before us tonight, uh, it just absolutely thrills me. It, it contains a truth that if we can understand, and I can communicate it uh, decently, it, is, it should answer a whole lot of questions uh, concerning your whole view of the history of man. And that's maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but I, I, I'm telling you, it's just wonderfully rich. And let's see if I won't botch it. Uh, let, let's just all pray together that he doesn't. Read with me once again, beginning at verse 12, and I want to read through verse 16. This is where we're going to return uh, tonight. Um, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are uh, just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, guys, uh, maybe you noticed a, a very strange way the, uh, as I read that, and I did that for a purpose. If you were with us last week, you remember I said to you the first thing that we have to do to this text is organize it. You will notice that in all of your translations there is a parenthesis. And there is a d disagreement among commentarians about where the parenthesis uh, should occur, where it should lie. Should it enclose verses 13, 14, and 15, or just verses 14 and 15? And I told you reasons last week why I believe that the New King James and the King James uh, have the parentheses in the right 
place, whereas the NIV does not. I think I'm correct in saying that the NIV uh, parenthesis uh, uh, places this parenthesis around verses 14 through 16, the uh, 14 through 15. The New King James and the King James has verses 13, 14, and 15 in parenthesis. And that is a parenthetical statement. And I said to you that the, that the, that the, the central statement is found in verses 12 um, uh, and 16. 12, no, 11, 12, and 16. So you should read it beginning at verse 11, for there is no partiality with God for as many as have sinned without law, etc., in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, the reason that I conclude that the parenthesis should be there is because you will notice, as I said last week, that the theme of verse 12 is judgment and the theme of verse 16 is judgment. And I'm suggesting to you that verses 13, 14, and 15 are parenthetical. But we didn't finish the major statement. So we've got to go up and go back and wrap that up, and then we get to the parenthesis. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, there is a wonderful thing in that parenthesis that I hope I don't confuse you over. And I hope you will walk out just as thrilled about it as I am. But let me, let me kind of tie up some loose ends about the statement itself. Verses 11, 12, and 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Not a whole lot that I want to comment, just a, a couple of quick things. First of all, uh, I, we were, I said to you last week that the theme is judgment, and you'll notice that this is a judgment that is conducted by the second person of the Trinity. That is, it's, um, it's Jesus Christ who is going to be uh, the one doing the judging, which I hope is not a new thought, because it's um, uh, mentioned uh, frequently in the New Testament. Let me read you. This is in John chapter 5. Um, beginning at verse 27, the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. That, of course, is a description of something that the Son of Man will do. And Paul simply points that out, that this judgment that he's talking about is one performed by the second person of the Trinity. And there's another item that I want you to pick up before we leave this, that you'll notice in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Judging men's secrets, not just their outsides, which was uh, pretty uh, typical of any Pharisee, that they looked just on the outside. But uh, Paul points out that this judgment will include that inside, that hidden stuff, that secret stuff. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a pretty um, a jolting kind of truth. Uh, I want to show you something. And I, I, I'm going to tell you something about my wife that she wouldn't tell you about herself. Um, there is one text in the Bible that she thinks is her least favorite text. Would you like to know my wife's least favorite text in the Bible? Well, I'm going to show it to you whether you want to see it or not. But I'd like you to turn real quickly with me to Luke chapter 12. This is my wife. You can write it in your Bible, Susie Young's least favorite text. It's uh, uh, Luke chapter 12. Um, and I want to begin reading 
Let me begin reading in verse 1, 12, 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here we go. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Now, here is my wife's least favorite text in the Bible. Therefore, Whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Are you ready for that? I, just in that theme, and I'll come back to that in just a second, but I want you to see one other thing. Um, are, are you married? I am. I'm very married. And, and I love being married. I, 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 I hate it that people don't get to enjoy what I get to enjoy because I love being married. And, and I, I do things with my wife that I don't do with other people. I hope you understand. Um, but <laughs> that's not exactly what I had in mind. Uh, <laughs> that exactly didn't come out the way I thought it was supposed to. <laughs> but I, I certainly will uh, fess up to that. Uh, <laughs> but my point is that I, I, I sometimes let down my guard. <laughs> Let's just close with prayer. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've told you my wife's least favorite text, and and, and some of the things I'm anyway, where was I? But uh, when I'm with my wife, I tend to let down my guard when I when uh, when I wouldn't let down my guard with some of you. Do you do that? You know, I say things to her that you know I perhaps uh, would never dream of saying to you because she is my ultimate confidant. She is my, she is my, it's, I hate the term, but it's, it's certainly communicative. She's my soulmate. Um, I, 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 I've said to people numerous times, if I married you, I said this to you. I said, next to the knowledge that Jesus Christ loves me and that when I die, I'm going to heaven. Next to that, the thing that I value most in this life is that my wife knows everything there is to know about me. And guess what? She still loves me. <laughs> Is that a miracle or what? She still loves me, knowing all that she knows. But, but here's my point. Let me read you. This is out of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Don't turn there. Unless you're a Baptist, you couldn't find it in time. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, unless you've got those cheating thumb things. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Listen to this, guys. Listen, listen, listen. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Don't even say it in your bedroom. Because you know what's going to happen? All those things said in the dark are going to be shouted from rooftops. The secrets of men will be judged by the Son of Man. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I clean up pretty nice. I remember, oh, by the way, Danny Thomas is with us, our dear friend from Ocala, Florida, who is uh, running Harvest International, which is one of the, um, the missions that we support here. Grace, there's Danny right there, the kind of the chubby one. Um, <laughs> but Danny will remember this. I, I, had a, I had a man come to me one time, and he said, um, you know, you're guilty of being proud. 
And I said, yes. Is that all? Because if, if that's all you got, let me tell you the other part. It's twice as bad as you think. Oh, is, is that all you got? Oh, well, I'm doing pretty good. Actually, ladies and gentlemen, if, if all you know about me is what you've observed on Sunday mornings and in the pulpit, <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. It's the secrets that you don't know. It's the secrets that will find their way to the rooftops. You ready for that? Don't, talk, don't curse the king in your bedroom. Don't talk bad about the preacher either. Because a bird, a bird of the air, may pick up your voice and carry it. Gang, all I'm saying is Paul talks about that this judgment that he's, that he's describing is going to be, in this, it's going to include the secrets. And you can tell why my wife has such little affection for that text. Maybe it can become all of our least favorite text. Because guys, in public we look pretty good. What about the secrets? Oh, I've got secrets I don't want you to know. But that'll be included in the judgment. And finally, he says, according to my gospel, and there have been people who have really made a lot out of that, or sought to make a whole lot out of that, about my gospel as if there's a, his gospel and another gospel, and this is kind of a, you know, a different shades of the gospel. Guys, Paul uses that language a lot. He uses it at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16. But Paul has made clear. Do you remember in Galatians 1, he says, if any man brings another gospel other than the one that I brought to you, may he be accursed. That, that, that Paul understands clearly that there's only one gospel. And he says, anybody that tampers with that one is to be cursed. But he's simply saying that that one gospel has become my gospel. And that he's not trying to suggest, as critics would have him, that he has a gospel and Peter has a gospel and Apollos has a gospel and Mark had a gospel and everybody had a different gospel and, and Paul's gospel can't be trusted any more than Luke's. You know, that's nonsense. He's just making possession by the use of that little pronoun uh, of the gospel, which is only one, and he defends it with his life. Now, guys, that's the... That's the, that's the theme. And I, I basically could spend the rest of the night on Luke chapter 12, on my wife's least favorite text. But we won't, because I'm so excited that you understand the contents of the innards of that parenthesis. So let's move on to try and consider it before the night closes on us. In the parenthesis, Paul does two things. Number one, he elaborates his main statement, and then he's going to pick up a couple of more... Um, objections and he's going to address those the the, the first issue folks is as you as we've said a, a dozen times already in this bible study that jews thought that they that they uh, that the fact that they were in possession of the law made them uh, some kind of special category of people because they had heard the law that kind of exempted them from anything else and because they had heard it that put them somehow right with god and, um, and so they don't need to hear this business about Jesus that Paul is bringing. It's just not useful for us because we've heard the law. And Paul is denouncing, if you just hear it, that isn't going to be uh, enough for you. Um, look at verse 13. Um, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, 
But the doers of the law will be justified. It's not enough simply to hear it. And that's what the Jews are. Well, we've heard it, and uh, that, should, uh, that should clear up everything for us. We're in possession of the law. And Paul is trying to make sure that Jews understood just because you heard it. In fact, in our day, ladies and gentlemen, we could almost change the word heard into the word read. Just because you've read it, just because you're aware of its existence, just because you can quote three or four of them. And, you know, I've, I've always wanted to do this to a group of uh, fine Christians like you and ask you, can you name for us the Ten Commandments? And, you know, it's amazing. Well, I got seven of them. What's the last three of those things? But, guys, whether you know all, seven, all ten of them or not, it's not important. The issue is not whether you've heard them or read them or memorized them. The issue is, says Paul, uh, you're, but the doers of the law, they're the ones who would be justified. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, as I said last week, the fact that you do know them renders you more culpable. It renders you more responsible for the obeying of them because we know them so well and memorized them in vacation Bible school. But Paul has already, he has dealt with the Jews in verse 13. Now he moves in verses 14 to 15 to deal with Gentiles. Notice how he opens verse 14. For when Gentiles... Now we're going to talk about Gentiles for the, for the moment, since he's already spoken and dealt with the Jewish issue. And in verses 14 and 15, it is as if Paul is anticipating an objection that people are going to raise or might raise or are raising. He's anticipating an objection that they have, and, he, um, and the objection would go something like this. That somebody in his audience would raise their hand and say, okay, Paul, I understand what you're saying about Jews. They have the law, they didn't obey it, they ought to be condemned. Right, Paul, I understand that, I see exactly what you're saying. But what about Gentiles? Uh, is it right that God should um, condemn somebody by a law that he had never heard? I mean, Paul, uh, should, should a man who'd never heard the law be condemned at all? How could you possibly justify such a thing? That God would just that God would condemn somebody uh, for a law that he had never heard. Um, guys, this uh, you maybe have seen this question asked in a different way. What about pagans who have never heard the gospel, the, the, et cetera, et cetera? Open up, listen up, and you're going to hear some. I, I hope some real clarifying stuff. What Paul is suggesting is. If it is a question of law, um, that is, in, in trying to answer the objection raised, if it's a question of law, then how uh, does that not mean that Gentiles are free? I didn't say that very well, but again, he's trying to anticipate that objection. If the issue is law, Paul, then wouldn't that mean that Gentiles would go scot-free? Because they never heard the law, Paul. Wouldn't that mean uh, that they're off the hook? I can see indeed, Paul, why it is that God is so upset with the Jews because they had the law and they didn't obey. But what about those Gentiles? Now look at the text, guys. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law 
by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. I'll read verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Okay, folks, stay with me. This is thrilling, exhilarating stuff. Paul is saying, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. They are not off scot-free. They are not innocent. And here's why they're not innocent. Look at verse 14 again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature of do the things in the law, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Paul is pointing out that even Gentiles have a moral consciousness. True, yes, yes, it is true. They never heard the law, that is the one that was given to Moses, and consequently are not under the law like Jews are, but they can be judged by God uh, in terms of a moral consciousness that they possess. Well now, Paul, uh, can, you, can you prove that there is a moral consciousness on the part of Gentiles? Why, yes, I can. And here are three proofs of a moral consciousness of someone who has never heard two bits worth of nothing. Here's three proofs of that moral consciousness. Number one, notice in verse 14, he says, um, for, when, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, uh, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. There's proof number one. There is a work of the law that is written in their hearts. Now, gang, notice the genius of the Scriptures. Notice it says, um, who show the work of the law written in the hearts. It does not say, that the law is written on their hearts. Because had the law been written on their hearts, they would have been more advantaged than the Jews. Because Jews only had it written on stone. And, secondarily, the, the great promises of Jeremiah and the new covenant that I will write the law on your heart would have already been fulfilled in Gentiles since the time immemorial. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's simply saying that the work of the law is written on their hearts because they and they do by nature the law however ignorant they may be of this thing called the law of moses written on two tablets they do have a moral consciousness you see it written on their hearts they have a they have an idea a perception of morality they they know there's a sense that i cannot steal what is my tribesmen's they know that murder is wrong. There is a kind of moral sense about them. And without knowing why, they try to attain to a certain moral standard. Everybody, no matter whether they've ever heard anything, knows that there is to be a sense of fair play. Pagans who have never heard the law stop at four-way stop signs because there is a work of the law written on their hearts. Guys, I want to read you something. I, reading is terrible pedagogy. You never teach people by reading to them. But this is priceless. 
This is a page out of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Guys, this is so good. It just, and I hope you can, he's talking about a law. He's talking about folks who say, oh, well, you know, uh, I can show you that there's no absolute moral code because, uh, you know, different cultures uh, have different sets of rules and their tribes and all that. I got to tell you a funny story, guys. Um, you know, I was called to a, a jury duty um, a couple of years back. And you know what jury duty is? You've all had it. You know, we, we preachers used to get out of it. We don't get out of it anymore. They used to say, you're a preacher. Oh, you can't tell the truth. You don't get on out of here. But now they even take preachers. Um, the, the rest of the culture is incarcerated. But, um, but they'll, they'll take preachers now. So anyway, I went up there and I signed in and I did my week's work. And, you know, you just sit in this big old room and they wait for you to call out your number or your name. So finally my name gets called. And they take me across the street, and, and um, you know, I walk up into this courtroom, you know, and everybody. And so they start, they, they needed a jury, they needed a jury of 12 and six alternates. 12 people in the box and six down here. And it's murder one. Murder one. Uh, capital murder, you know. And so um, they start reading out their names, and I'm saying, oh, don't use my name. I don't want to go up there. And sure enough, Jimmy Young. So I go up there and take my seat in the box. And so then they, then after they've got all 18 of us up there, they start interviewing all 18 of us, the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney, start interviewing. <laughs> uh, so I don't know which one it was. I think it was the, I think it was the prosecutor came up and, and, you know, he's asking questions about what you do, you know, have you ever been in, you know, you know all, no, 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 no. And then they say, is there any reason why you shouldn't be on this jury? <laughs> I raised my hand. They said, all right, Mr. Young, what? I said, well, I just want you to know I think it's only fair that you know that I am committed to natural law. Um, like Clarence Thomas and uh, Senator Edward Kennedy fought about in his confirmation hearings. And they started looking at each other. <laughs> and then the judge gets in and he says, uh, uh, Mr. Young, what exactly are you saying? And I said, well, I, I, I am one who never said that I'm a Christian, never said that I'm committed to the Bible. I simply said, I believe that there is in man a consciousness of right and wrong having been written there by a, 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 um, the moral governor of the universe. <laughs> and the guy looked at the judge, and so they all kind of conflabbed up at the desk. <laughs> I mean, the prosecutor, and they all stood there, and then they go back to their little benches, and they start disqualifying people. Guess who was number one? <laughs> Mr. Young, you can leave. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I wasn't relishing the idea of sitting in a jury box, but I would have loved to have done it. But they don't want that, ladies and gentlemen, because they don't agree that exists. They believe that an obvious uh, reason not to believe that is that various cultures have different laws. Now listen, gang, this is rich. And if you've never read Mere Christianity, read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or, or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have quite different moralities. You see what he's saying? He said, I know that people are saying there's no such thing as a law of nature because there's different civilizations, different moralities, etc., etc. Now listen to this genius. But this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, 
the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will strike him will be how very much alike they are to each other and to our own. Some of the evidence for this I have put together in the appendix of another book entitled The Abolition of Man. But for our present purpose, I need only ask the reader to think what a totally different morality would mean. Think, think. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle. Or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone, but they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whatever... Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four. But they've always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. Do you get that? That, yeah, there's, you know, um, um, you might, in our culture we have four wives. Now you can only have uh, one over there. But we all agree that you can't have anyone you like because there is a moral consciousness written into the heart of Ladies and gentlemen, people are not condemned because they didn't hear the gospel. They are condemned because they refused to listen to a moral consciousness that was built into them, and that is natural law. Let me give you, we got four minutes. There's a second proof. Paul mentions the conscience. Um... Their, uh, uh, who show by the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Guys, the, 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 the conscience is simply a kind of moral voice, kind of an inward monitor. Uh, the conscience is not a perfect guide, and it'll change uh, over a lifetime. But Paul makes it clear in, all, in his, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, he spends three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, telling us, don't ever violate somebody's conscience, even if their conscience is wrong. Be very careful and very respectful of a conscience. Well, guys, um, the conscience just proves that there's a standard. Then one other thing, we'll shut up, or I'll shut up. You're not talking. I'm, I'm, I'm talking. I'll shut up. But you've got to see this argument, guys, because it's really thrilling. Um, who show the work of the law written in hearts, their conscience also... Here we, here we are. Here's the third proof. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Do, do you know what Paul is saying? He is describing a situation, folks, where these guys, these Gentiles who've never heard anything about the law of Moses, they get together and they, to, they debate with each other as to who's right and who's wrong. They get together and say, oh, no, no, you shouldn't have done that. I know that's right. Now, gang, it doesn't matter what they're debating. And it doesn't matter who wins that argument. All he is saying is, even the deepest, darkest pagans get together, and what do they discuss? Right versus wrong. And they may come to wrong conclusions and they'll condemn each other or excuse each other based on their standards of right and wrong. But they know 
they know that there is a right and wrong. And they wouldn't be having these conversations, ladies and gentlemen. They wouldn't be having these debates. Even in the most primitive tribes, they wouldn't be having these arguments unless they knew there was a standard. You know, I went to Boston several years ago, and I came back all lighted up over something, and I'm still lighted up about it, ladies and gentlemen. If I have to spend my last drop of my blood, you can have it. But the thing that I want to leave behind, this is my legacy. If I can accomplish this, you can put me away. All I want people to know is absolutes exist. You can, you can figure out which ones. I want to change this culture, if not the culture, simply our community, simply to know, no. Truth is not relative. There is a standard given by an omnipotent moral governor. And even the pagans know it. If you need to get to a meeting or a choir practice, now's the time to do it. close the rest of us in prayer our father how we love your word we are a people who understand that the final arbiter of the truth is not our opinions it's not the Wall Street Journal it's not the absolute plethora of voices that we hear telling us how foolish we are how intolerant we are how bigoted we are. Father, if we are those things, please forgive us. We never intend to be those things. But we do love your law. And rivers of tears flow from our eyes because men do not obey your law. Father, might that never be said of us. Might we be a people, not only who believe in absolutes, but people who live based on those very absolutes. It is our joy to find underneath us, O oh God, bedrock. Bedrock, Father. As the world continues to live out its life with her feet firmly planted in midair, we, as the people of God, have built our houses on a rock. We love you for doing that, Father. And now our commitment is to go live afresh, committed to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night. Tom Jordan, I need you.